It's been a long time, but uh, I finally can say that we are in the final chapter of Isaiah. Turn in your Bibles on your apps to Isaiah chapter 66. Sermon number 49 in this book. We are going to take a short break from expository preaching uh, in the next couple of weeks, look at discipleship, we'll have baptisms, what does it mean to be a disciple, what does it mean to make disciples that Jesus told us to do, he said, I'll build my church, you go and make disciples, what does that mean, what does that look like, and then uh, the beginning of October, we are going to jump into the book of the gospel according to Dr. Luke, so we'll be in there for quite some time and walking through that book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, which is our regular diet here at King's Chapel, so be looking at that book, be reading that book, and being uh, hopefully God will prepare your heart to uh, respond in a way that brings him glory. Um, so we're in Isaiah chapter 6. We've seen this over and over again. That God is calling his people throughout this book to repent of sin, to, to recognize him as the one true God, creator of the universe. Um, I'm kind of, I, I, I've titled this, we'll see in a few minutes, um, you know, worship and wonder. I, I, as I finish, as we finish Isaiah, I can't help but see that God has been throughout Isaiah calling his people from their sins to the wonder and the beauty and the glory of who he is, to worship him. It started in chapter 1 with false worship, calling people to worship him in truth. I mean, even in the first section of chapters 1 through 39, God chastises people. We know he sent the army, the enemy army of the Assyrians to discipline his people. He did it for their holiness and for his glory. And over and over again, God has revealed his glory. He's the Holy One of Israel. His authority, his sovereignty over the nations, coupled with his love and his mercy and his grace. And it's to give them hope, it's to give us hope. I hope we've seen lots of, uh, have received lots of hope as we study through this book together. For there, always, there is always hope for those who turn from their idols, who turn from their waywardness, turn from trusting created things, worshiping created things, rather than the creator God who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Romans chapter 1. And we've learned throughout this book that sin and judgment and the inability to live righteously uh, is, is a reality for all of us, that there needs to be mercy and grace, and it's been granted to us by God. And that's why we've been calling this theme, uh, this series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. It shows us the good news of the gospel. It's not just the good news of the gospel, it is it's the announcement of good news. That's what Isaiah's been doing, announcing the good news, that God took on flesh became like one of us, yet without sin, to become that substitute, that savior, that redeemer. Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life in our place, died atoning death in our place, so that God can extend grace, love, and mercy to sinners who are without hope in and of themselves. We find our hope in God. But just like in the ancient days of Israel, people refused to repent, and they refused to humbly accept the grace of God, the love of God, and worship him in truth. As we get to chapter 66, it's a call not only to acknowledge false worship and idolatry, but to turn to God in repentance and faith, and a time of rejoicing, a time of God's comfort, a time that God will give us hope, not only now, but we'll see into eternity. So let's jump right in. We're in chapter 66 of Isaiah. Um, I broke this, this chapter down in, in um, three main headings. Um, the final chapter, Worship and Wonder, the humility and haughtiness of man, the peace and prosperity of Zion, and the gathering in glory of God. 1 through 6, 7 through 14, 15 through 24. So if you're taking notes or you're taking the outline, there it is for you. So number one, 
Let me read to you God's holy word, inspired, authoritative word. Isaiah chapter 66. Let me read to you verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things come to be, come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, he who slaughters an ox like one who kills a man, he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol, these have chosen their own ways." And their soul delights in their abomination. I also, verse 4, will choose harsh treatment for them. And bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes. And chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Verse 6. The sound of an uproar from the city. A sound from the temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Isaiah asserts from the very beginning. Thus saith the Lord. And he begins this last prophecy pointing to the immensity and the, the enormity of God. That even God in his greatness cannot cannot and will not be contained in the heavens and the earth. He is so great that the heavens and the earth cannot contain him. Interesting, because we have seen over the past few weeks, over this last section, 56 through 66, there are lots of questions that the people of God were asking, like, where are you, God? Do you hear our cry? Does he care about us? Does he know what we're doing? Why is he not helping us? And here we see the answer to some of those questions, like who is God and, and where is God and, and to whom or to, to whom does God look toward favor toward? It says here, God is sovereignly present, reigning over the whole earth, the whole heavens, all of creation. And this imagery that Isaiah pitches for us is a king who, who reigns and rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. He's not limited to any temple made by any king or made by any rulers a group of people. The idea, uh, Isaiah wants us to see, that God is enthroned in heaven. And that's the theme that's been proclaimed in Isaiah. Many of the prophets proclaimed it. And even the nation's songs declare the sovereignty and ruling reign of God. And this concept demonstrates God's great glory, God's majesty, his authority, uh, the, the, the word of God, uh, as well as his uh, extensive power over all the world, everything exists for him. This is not simply God cares about you, and that's true. Or God cares about his people, well, that's true. God's interest and God's control extends beyond the vast scope of space and time. He reigns and rules over all things. It's not possible to build a house that can contain God. It's not possible to anything for him to to sit down and rest in, in a sense. doesn't deny that God told Solomon to build him a temple. I mean, we, we know that to be true. But even Solomon, when he built the temple, at the prayer of dedication, Solomon showed his awareness of the unsuitability of his finite dwelling for an infinite God. This, this finite dwelling, this, this temple for an infinite God. 
This is Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. The wonder of God. That God has created all things. What he's saying is, you can't go out and build something that I made. You can't put together some brick and mortar and bring some animals in and, 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 and kind of give it to me as a gift. I created all those things. But it's sort of like a child, though, I think, as we'll see. Sort of like a child. If one of your small children, Dad, you know this to be true, too, goes into the closet, into your closet, takes something out that belongs to you, and comes running to you and says, Hey, Dad, this is a gift for you. What's more important, the gift or his attitude? The gift or his, his love and, and, and admiration and, and care for his parent. We don't care where the gift came from. And in some ways what God is saying, that all that you do and all that you sacrifice, everything belongs to me. It's not about the things you bring. It's not about the things you make. What I'm looking for is a, is a heart that is worshipful, that is reverent, that's intent on serving, loving and worshiping me. That's, that's what we're going to see in this text. That God is transcendent. God is sovereign. But he is pleased to come and dwell with his people. Who look at verse 2. Who humbly recognize their need. His need their need for him and his holiness. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble. And contrite in spirit. Trembles at my word. The word humble here means poor and meek. The lowliest levels of society. Those in which the, the, the powerful and the dominant would, would take advantage of. They're the ones who, who rely solely and absolutely on God. That's all they could turn to. And the contrite in spirit of those who recognize that their sinful inadequacies, their, their, their previously broken spirit is now subservient to God. They have contrite in spirit. They recognize who they are and who he is. They're humble. They're contrite. Look what it says. They tremble at my word. What is he saying? He's saying that those who, who have a reverent attitude toward my word, who, who submit to its authority, who submit to the words and to the commands that God has revealed to us. Family, we, we, don't want to be, we don't want to ignore, we don't want to pervert, we don't want to disobey, we don't want to doubt, we, we don't want to mock the word. We're called, what, to, to listen to the word, to learn from the word, and then James tells us to obey the word. When the walls were built, rebuilt, you know, this is, a, this is a time in Isaiah when the exile had returned from Babylonian exile. And when the walls were built under the, under the ministry of Nehemiah, we read in chapter 8 of Nehemiah that there was a priest named Ezra. Ezra the priest. And, and it says in chapter 8, after the wall was dedic being dedicated, after it was being built, that he opened up the word of God. And he said he stood before the assembly and read the word of God from early morning until midday. Okay, a long time. Sure is. I heard that. Okay. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen. He opens up the word. He's speaking from the word. They, they answer, Amen and Amen. They lift up their hands and they bow their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Do you see what's happening? When Ezra opened up the book, they recognized that when God's word was being spoken, God was actually speaking. 
They didn't sit in judgment of the word. They didn't stand over the word. They allowed the word of God and they were humbled by the revelation of God. They allowed his word to take precedent and preeminent and they fell down before God and the word of God was being read. What God blesses is not buildings. When we have this building dedication, it's not in a sense where we have a new building now, God. We, we, we want you to now to do something uh, because of the building. No, we want to say we're having a building dedication because we want to have space so that he would be glorified, that he would be worshipped, that many will come to know and love Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and be in right and reconciled relationship with him. And we have seen throughout the history, Israel's history and others' history, that sometimes you get caught up in this, in this liturgy of worship or the style of worship, and you get more, that's more important than the actual presence of the Lord himself, in which all those things may symbolize, but we lose sight of who God is. What God blesses is a humble and trembling heart, not false worship, not hypocrisy, doing all the right things, but doing it your way and not listening to the word or my way. That is why true biblical worship from the heart, true biblical worship from the heart is saturated with the word of God. With the word of God. A lot of times, and I know if you've been a believer any amount of time, when, when people talk about going to church, how was the worship? And many times when you say how was the worship, you're thinking about the music. And that's, that's part of it, that's true. But how many times when people say how was the worship, what they're talking about is the word of God being preached listen to, desire to obey and to believe. The preaching of the word, the response to the word, the understanding, the hearing, and the responding to the word being preached. That too is worship. I'm worshiping right now. I hope you're worshiping right now. The one to whom God looks with favor on is the, not, not the cool band, although we have one, or the fanciest liturgy, or even the simplest liturgy, but the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at the word of God. Charles Spurgeon said, do you, do you ever come into the place, this place, gathering, and sit down in the pew and say, Lord, grant that thy word may search me and try me, that I may not be deceived. Certain people, he says, must always have sweets and comforts, but God's wise children do not wish for these in undue measure, daily bread we ask, not daily sugar, end quote. Sorry for all you ch chocolate lovers. The Hebrew word for worship is to prostrate oneself. And this verse in Isaiah unfolds for us the true meaning of worship. Not, not just simply an, an emotionally high-fueled worship with lively music. Not that that's bad and in bad of itself, but a sober recognition and understanding of how hopeless we are before a true and a holy God and how we are relying on his mercy, on his grace. That's why we sing songs about the gospel. We preach about the gospel. It's a full awareness of his majesty, our sinfulness, and yet his grace and mercy being poured out to us on Calvary's hill. Otherwise, we take matters into our own hands. Look at verse 3. We see a contrast about this false worship, this, this, this fake worship, this hypocrisy. And the description we find in verse 3 is four pairs. of Isaiah is interesting. He, he takes four pairs of permissible acts of worship and he matches them with four prohibited acts of worship. And he's setting them side by side, that side by side, that which is lawful and that which is unlawful. One slaughters a bull, one kills a man, which is sinful action. One sacrifices a lamb, one strangles a dog, meaningless. One brings a gift of grain, but another brings pig's blood. Totally unacceptable in the eyes of, of the Jewish people. One makes, an innocent, one, makes, 
an incense memorial. See what it says? Someone else blesses an idol. It's idolatry. What he's saying, I think he's saying, is the bottom line is that people with an unclean heart, a prideful, unclean heart, will offer unclean things, no matter how much they follow the rules and regulations of how God wants to be worshipped. Such offerings an offense to God. And we read that all throughout the scripture. Malachi 1. Malachi tells the people to stop worshiping hypocritically. Jesus, so many times in the New Testament, pointed out, especially to the self-righteous, prideful Pharisees, that they were whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they looked beautiful in their robes and their tassels, but inwardly, they were full of death and filth. In other words, offered out of an unclean heart, an ox is no different than a man, a lamb no different than a dog. You can see, you can see what he's getting at. Swine and blood and, and a memorial incense will be given just like to an idol. I think what Isaiah is pointing to is not only that you can't worship any way you want, but even as we come and we worship in the prescribed way, our hearts have to be humble, contrite, willing, willing to, to hear from the word of God. It reveals to us who he is. But if not, look at, continue verse 3. Those who refuse to listen, verse 3, your own way, you've gone your own way, and they're sold, sold delights in their abominations. And just as they have chosen their own prideful ways, God says, I've chosen one for you, verse 4. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. I spoke, no, they didn't listen. They did what was evil. And they chose what I do not delight in. Family, this is a sad place to be where people rebel, they persist. Even God's warning to you this morning, don't persist in rebellion, right? Don't, 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 re, don't refuse to respond. That when God calls, listen. They were unwilling to listen when God speaks to them. And, and it was they, it wasn't, it wasn't God, it was they, not them, that sealed their destiny because they excluded the possibility of having a relationship with God through humility and contrite spirit and, and, and uh, 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 trembling at his word. Coming the way you want and how you think things should go is an affront to God. And in their pride, they wouldn't even listen to him. Please, this morning, hear the call of God. Turn from your pride and humbly respond to him in faith. And trust, he loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. Hear the call of God. Turn from your pride and respond. Mourn even. Maybe you're at, the, maybe you're at some place this morning where your heart is, has, has gotten cold toward the Lord. Call out to him. Humble yourself. He'll hear and he'll respond with love and grace. Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself where? In the Lord. In his word. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Now verse 5 and 6 is interesting to see again contrast between true worshipers and so-called brothers who call themselves brothers anyway that are not true worshipers. And he's showing this in these verses 5 and 6 on how hollow and empty religion can be. And how prideful a people can become and really mock those who have genuine faith. Now you see these in verses that prideful empty religion hates genuine faith. They hated you. Second, prideful empty religion rejects true faith. They, he, they cast him out. You see that in verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, they cast you out. 
Empty religion also acts in the name of the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord's sake. Yeah, that's what Paul said. Persecuting and murdering Christians. And lastly, empty religion, prideful religion, mocks with spiritual sounding words. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Listen. God said, look, you want to mock true faith? A heart that is contrite? A heart that is humble? A heart that trembles at my word? It will you. It will be you that will be ashamed. And praise God, he knows all those who are his. And at the end of the day, when the false brothers kick out the faithful ones, it will bring public shame on them. They shall be ashamed. And and the reversal will take place. And family, we're going to experience that more and more. When we stand upon this as our final authority, and we say the scripture says, the law of God says, whether you're in a soccer field or a school building, we just say, you know what, we're, we're, we follow what the scriptures teach. They're going to mock you. And we should not respond with, with hatred. We should love our enemies. We should not respond, as I like to say, with being a jerk. We should love and care for them. We've got to learn how can we love people yet stand on God's word and God's truth. And that's coming. That's already come in many, many situations. Um, the Lord will repay. In the end of the day, you see the end of verse 6, the sound of an uproar from the city, the sound of the temple, he will bring shame to his enemies. So the humble and the haughtiness of man in contrast, and now we have the peace and the prosperity. Look, verse 7 through 14. Before she was born, excuse me, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who had heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice, verse 10, with Jerusalem. And be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy. And you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied. There was mourning, now there's nursing and satisfaction from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with the light from her glorious abundance. Verse 12, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. You shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounce upon her knee, and one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. I love this about Isaiah. God declares the truth of what will take place to the enemies of God, but he always mingles it with hope, peace, and salvation. And prosperity. Here it's Lady Zion. And, and, the, and the promises that were made in chapter 1 come to fruition. The dross we read in chapter 1 has been purged away. And instead of becoming a harlot, that's what they said in chapter 1, Zion has become of the faithful city, the mother of nations. And Isaiah takes this picture of, of a mom, a pregnant woman, I should say, giving birth to a son without pain. She would give birth to a boy before she begins experiencing labor pains. Now, we know that that's not the way it works. Now, I don't know personally, but I've seen enough that it doesn't work that way. Right? 
That's why in verse 8, this negative rhetorical question, who has heard such a thing? Really no pain in giving birth? Shall a lamb be born in a day? Well, no, he says, who heard these things? Who has seen these things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be forth, brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. The point is, God is doing a supernatural work. That's the point. He is doing the work. For what takes place in Zion is God. And since the time of the curse, Genesis 3.16, mothers have suffered in childbirth. And God here is emphasizing that what he has started and what he will do, he will do and he will complete it. Just like in Philippians we read, right? He's, Paul says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you, he, God, who began a good work in you, will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. The point is absolutely to teach and to show that the promises that God has said to his children, joy and blessing will come to the new Jerusalem without pain, without effort, because God will do the work. Rejoice, he says in verse 10, in Jerusalem. All God's people are called to share in the joy of Zion, the joy of Jerusalem. The peace and prosperity of Zion. The time of deliverance has come. Victory has come. Vindication has come. Be glad, those who love her, he says. And if God's people would do this, look what that says. They, they, they will be fed. They will be satisfied with the consolation of her breasts. What, what, a, what a picture. Maybe you've never seen this in Scripture before. That this prophet presents that they were once mourners... And now, as, as a young child, sucking contently and the breasts of her mom. That's what Isaiah is saying. An abundance, the satisfaction of a child and her mom. A picture of a role of mom nursing and nurturing is compared to the comfort of God in Jerusalem. The place of peace and prosperity. That's what God's word tells us. The picture in, uh, in 11b, the second part, is her pouring out, draining herself, the son drinking deeply of the abundance of her glory, all her rich and marvelous comfort and satisfaction and prosperity can be found right there. Now, we've talked about this before. Is Isaiah talking about the Messiah when he comes, who comforts God's people? Is he talking about the incarnation? Is he talking about the second coming, the birth of the nation? Is he talking about uh, when, when the gospel goes out after Pentecost, the preaching of the gospel? Is he talking about the millennial reign of Christ, a literal thousand-year reign? Is he talking about the new heavens and the earth? There are a lot of people that have a lot of difference of opinions. But at the end of the day, God will, in his sovereignty and holy purpose, finish what he started. And there'll be comfort and there'll be joy. And the things that are mentioned here, I think some have happened, some will happen in the future, and some will happen in abundance and the completion and, 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 and in the new heavens and the new earth. Comfort and consolation will be found in Christ. Family, all this is possible because of Christ. Isaiah tells us that. He's the king of kings who comes. He's the suffering servant who died on the cross. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, that will deliver God's people from sin, death, and hell. That's the whole point. And we, the church, are called to comfort those who are broken. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And in some ways, that's our call as people of God. To comfort those who are broken. To, to, to go to those and love those and care for those 
and, and to, to, to bring healing through the power of the gospel to those who are broken and need the comfort of God, who will do it himself. Verse 12. The Lord would extend peace, shalom, like a river. That's, it's interesting, in verse 12, if you have your Bibles open, there are two, there are two words here in the Greek, in the, excuse me, in the Hebrew. Like a river and overflowing stream. Those two Hebrew words are different. The, the first word here, uh, like a river, is, is simply like the river Jordan, where it is an abundance of water continually flowing. And the second word that's being used, overflowing stream, is more of a, of a riverbed that's dry, but when the rain season comes and a thunderstorm comes, there's flash flooding that's taking place. And the picture here we see is, is this abundance and fullness and prosperity that comes to the land. And it's not just for Jerusalem. It says the glory of all the nations will be like a flowing stream. And I couldn't help but think as I was reading this passage this week, uh, going back, way back I guess, but we went through the gospel according to John. And we read that on the Feast of Tabernacles, that last day of the feast, um, that Jesus was there at the feast. And if you remember, and I probably don't, but I'll remind you, at that last day it was very festival. There was a lot of festivities going on dressed in their, in their robes, there was music, there was band, there was priests, and they would go down to the Pool of Siloam with these silver, excuse me, golden vessels. And, they, and the band and the priest would go down, they would fill the vessel with a, a pool of water, and the other vessel had wine in it. And they would come up and march up, and they would be singing, they would come into the place where the altar was, where the sacrifices were were given, and they would be what's called a, a, a drink offering to the Lord. And they would take the water and they would take the wine, they would pour it in these funnels as a drink offering. And the, everyone would be singing what's called the Hallel, Psalm 113. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks. Oh, shout for thy salvation. They would even talk about, they would even mention Isaiah. With joy we draw water from the well of salvation. All this was a, a picture of God's eschatological, his end times offering, the Messianic kingdom, and, and this pouring out of the blessings of God, and, and the spirit of God, and the peace of God, and the prosperity of God, and the fullness of God. That, that's what this was all about. And as the water was being poured in, and they were celebrating and shouting, when it was all done, there would be silence in the crowd. Why? Because they were like, is God going to act? Let's just wait and see. It was then that many people believed that Jesus stood up if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, which he's saying, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah invite people to drink of the waters, but Jesus says, I am the living water. I know what it means to have real peace in me and provision in me. Come to me. And living waters will flow out of you. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And I could tell you this. There may be difference of opinions exactly when this takes place, but I could tell you why it takes place. Jesus. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our fullness. He is our comfort. He is our abundance. He is our peace. He will usher in the new kingdom with peace, comfort, and care. And it's only because of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, that we have all of that. Now, verse 13, we'll keep moving forward here, is a prominent theme of that comfort of God. Isaiah mentioned in chapter 61, the servant Messiah will comfort. His ministry is of comfort. Mentioned 11 times throughout chapters 40 to 66. Here, three times is mentioned in one verse, the comfort of the Lord. Oswald, who's a, a 
a theologian and, and commentator of Isaiah, says this, The arm of the Lord has been revealed. Sin and its attendant sorrow and shame have been defeated. Death has been met and vanquished. Mourning is defeated forever. Comfort indeed, end quote. What's so beautiful about verse 13 is that God emphasizes his care by adding the, the personal pronoun, I myself, I will comfort you, verse 13. And he describes it twice, once from his perspective, I will do it, and once from Jerusalem, you will be comforted. And it really expresses, I think God is just wants us to see this morning, the depth of his love. The love and the personal care he has for his people, for you this morning, for me this morning. And please take note here that God the Father is to have a mother's love for her offspring. That's okay. In fact, in the ESV, if you have an ESV, which I'm reading from, from it says in verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, the, the, the Hebrew word there is a man, not one, a, a man whom his mother comforts. And people, theologians are like, well, we're talking about babies, now we're talking about an adult. And I think what Isaiah is trying to say is, no matter how old you are, when things go hayward, or things go wild, or things fall into the ground, if you have a loving relationship with your mom, you can run into your mom. For comfort and consolation, no matter how old you are, right? Yeah. So that's the imagery here. A personal, ongoing, caring nature of God's tender, comfort, sympathetic relationship with his people. He's the source of comfort. Not just words, but actually imparting strength for them. And that's what this is all about. So hearing of these promises, look what it says, that we should rejoice. Rejoice. Verse 14, you shall see your heart and you shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. <laughs> the, the, the promises of God, the comfort of God, the work of the gospel, the relationship, the, the reconciled relationship with God that we have promised, that he had promised to us should help make us rejoice. It brings vigor to our bones, sprouting like the grass, he says. And then, of course, the contrast. Look at the last part. The, land, the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. The time will come, it'll be unmistakable. God will know those who love, worship, come to him by grace through faith in Christ alone, and those who refuse to come, and his anger will be against them. And I know that's not a popular thing. Why not run to him in love now? Why not to receive his grace and mercy now? Finally, the gathering and glory of God, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his word with all flesh and those who slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify, verse 17, and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice and mice shall come to an end Together, declares the Lord, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nation of Tarshish, Pul, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tobol, Javan, and to the coastlands far away, that they have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. I'm like, what is that? I had to look it up, i got to be honest. It's sort of, it's like a camel. 
to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as Israelite bring grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some, some of them, also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and a new earth that I sh- make shall remain before me, says the Lord, and so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. God had a blessing to the reading of his word. We've seen this already, family. And again, that's why we do expository preaching. We see the love and grace of God in the gospel. But we also recognize that the time will come. We see the description here. The coming of God. Accompanied by fire, a sword, and a chariot, and the wrath of of destruction upon those who worship falsely and who worship pagan gods. Earlier, Isaiah predicted that fire would destroy uh, his enemies who reject the law, chapter 5. Destroyed the proud Assyrians, chapter 10. The proud people of Babylon, chapter 47. That he will come and destroy and consume his enemies, chapter 26 and 33. The power of God's sword will destroy those who resist and rebel against him, chapter 1. Assyria, chapter 31. All the nations, chapter 34. Over and over again, now we see that God will come in a sword and with fire and a chariot. And his vengeance will be poured out on the earth. In chapter 63, remember a couple of weeks ago. The Bible talks about the year of the Lord's redemption and it will come in the day of God's vengeance. Jesus Christ in John, excuse me, Revelation 19 and in Isaiah 63 is going to return to earth. The Bible is clear. He's wearing a robe stained in blood, slaughtering his foes with the sword coming out of his mouth. And the Bible says, with which to strike down the nations, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what God will do. As I said earlier, why wait to vengeance? Why not run to the one who took the wrath in our place? Who loves you? who died for you, who took what you deserve, lived a life you could never live and then died in your place, taking on what we deserve, God's wrath, his vengeance. And then three days later, rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. Run to Jesus. He loves you. Worship him in spirit and truth. In verse 17, God reveals what will come of these idolaters. Look what it says what they're doing. They're they're trying to sanctify and purify themselves and go into the gardens. They shall come to an end altogether. You know what they're doing? They're trying to, 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 to make themselves acceptable in the sight of God by their own works instead of the grace of God and the gospel of God. All the sanctification, all the purification in the world will do you no good if you think you can earn your way into the presence of God and worship Him. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when God comes in the fire of His wrath, He will stop all the practice. He will end it immediately. And to to, to avoid any doubt, look what Isaiah adds, declares the Lord. You see, deep in the human heart, there's there's this need to justify ourselves to ourselves. And we could take some time the precious gifts of God 
and make them as a means of saving ourselves. Like, look how, look how much I gave this month, God. Look, look how many times I'm in church. Look how many ways in which I read my Bible, how much Bible knowledge I have, and how wonderful I am, how nice I am, and all those things. When they become self-righteous, what does the Isaiah say? They are but filthy rags. Those things may be good things, but when they are things that you think you can do in order to earn the favor of God, that's religion. That's paganism. The gospel is he, Christ, earned those things, lived that life, followed the law perfectly, and by grace through faith alone gives us the gift of eternal life. And out of the gratitude and thanksgiving of all that God has done for us on Jesus' moral record, we're saved. Not ours. And, and, and I, I, maybe you're here and, you're, and you, just, you just think, there's got to be something I can do. I'm here to tell you that's your pride. There's nothing you could do. It's already been done. You can't add to the cross. You can't add to the work of Jesus. He alone will bring salvation. Now lastly, in verse 18. It's a time that God will reveal his majesty and his presence on earth. So that all the people, all the nations, all the places will worship him. They will see his glory. They will, they will worship him, and he will bring many back. There will be a gathering of those who are coming back to the mountain of Zion to worship God. And, and we see that way back in Abrahamic covenant, that God was going to give him a seed, a descendant, and a name, so that he will bless the whole world. And make no mistake, God's glory, his majesty, his magnificence, his beauty, his incalculable worth is on display in our salvation and in judgment. But one cannot miss in these verses, and I want us to see this as we close, the missionary heart of God. I will set a sign, he says. Maybe pointing to the empty tomb, like the sign of Noah, right? Uh, Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. The Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth, a sign of the gospel. But, but God is the one who initiating this from Jerusalem. I will send out. I will show forth the fame of my glory. I will make it known. I will tell it to the mountain, to the glory. I will tell my glory to the nation. Isaiah is a book of, of the missionary heart of God. Yet, yes, Israel was called, whether it's Abraham, whether it's the 12 tribes, whether it was Solomon, to show forth the beauty and the magnificent and calculable worth of God, but so is the church, 1 Peter. So is the church. We are to be light to the world. God commanded the church to declare his glory among the nations. And we do that by preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, loving people, demonstrating with, with good deeds and, and declaring with them the word of God. The gathering of the nations will come. Again, whether it's the fulfillment in the new heaven and new earth or the reign of Christ. But one thing we know, verse 20, the bring your brothers from all the nations offering to the Lord. There's, there's this sign, there is this picture that Isaiah has. We've seen this before, where the Gentile nations will bring the people of God, the Jewish people of God, into the mountain to, to worship the Lord. Sort of an off, uh, offering unto the Lord. But verse 20 very interesting, turn with me if you have there, verse 21. Some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And them is the nation, the Gentile nation. What, what, what Isaiah is saying, when it comes to the end, when the new heavens and a new earth and the consummation of all things, there'll be no distinction, there'll be one people of God. The new heaven and the new earth, verse 22. The final eternal kingdom. 
The distinction between Israel and non-Israelites are gone is a full participation in the glory of God in the nations. What a gorgeous, beautiful picture of worship and wonder. For Isaiah, God's the only creator. We've seen that throughout the book. He stretched out the first heavens, founded the first earth, and he alone will really make it, remake it in the end. There's no other God. All other idols are frauds, fakes, and cannot and will not keep their promises. We saw that in chapter 17. There are two categories of people that Isaiah keeps saying. Those who humble themselves, worship the Lord, thanking him for his grace, resting in his promises, trusting in his provision, and those who refuse, who foolishly rebel against him and want nothing to do with him. And their destinies can't be any more clear. The worship of God in Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, praising him and worshiping him for, and loving him all the days of our life or separated from him in hell. Isaiah said this over and over and over again. Here's the good news. God makes a promise to the nation. God made a promise to Abraham and to all the people. And as we see, we studied the book of Genesis together. We see that man has failed, man has failed, man has failed, man has failed. And God could have said, you know what? You screwed up. Until you get it right, come back. But he didn't. And we praise God that he did not. And yet he came on a rescue mission and sent his only son as a sacrifice for our sins. And then we see, because of Jesus, because of the sacrifice, he will comfort his people. And the ultimate plan we see in Revelation 19, that he will gather together all the nations, every tongue, tribe, and nation of all people, to worship him in spirit and truth. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And, and look with me again these last couple of verses, the contrast. Those who love, those who worship, those who uh, are humble, are contrite in spirit, who acknowledge the authority of God's word, and those who rebel. And this last, I mean, Isaiah ends the last few verses here. Uh, dead bodies, worms shall not die, the fire shall not be quenched. Jesus taught the same thing, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. You know, Isaiah opened up in chapter 1, invoking the heavens and the earth as witness against their sinfulness in Judah. And it concludes by envisioning a new heaven and a new earth and the only adequate place for eternal worship and yet still the final destination of all those who rebel against him. So the call this morning is not only worship and wonder, but the call this morning is have you come to Christ? This communion table is for followers of Jesus. A time in which we remember, we worship, and we wonder at the cross. The bread, his body, it was broken. The cup represents the blood that he shed. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the band's going to play. You can come down. You have uh, communion in the back there for the back and the front here. Come grab the element, grab the bread, grab the drink, and sit down. And I'll come up and lead us through communion. But maybe you're here this morning. You've never trusted Christ. Today's the day. And just bow your head and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins, to turn from the, trying to justify yourself, live as your own Lord, and trust Jesus. Rest solely on his finished work. Stop trying to justify yourself and trust in Jesus, who, whose moral record and perfect life and atoning death brings you into a reconciled relationship with him. But let me say one last thing. Maybe you're a believer this morning and this you need to see the worship and the wonder of God. And my prayer for us this morning, by the power of his spirit and the word uh, of the gospel, that we will worship him and wonder 
how magnificent, glorious, good God is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have learned a lot about you in the gospel, studying Isaiah together, the most beautiful portrait of your son in all the Old Testament. Thank you for that. And I, I think I can say for all of us that we need a greater picture, a wonder, a heart full of wonder of your grace, your mercy, your kindness to us, God. As we celebrate this communion, we pray, God, that you would grant us repentance of sin that we may be holding on to, but also showing us the comfort and the care of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would celebrate the work of the cross, complete forgiveness, being washed in his blood as we take of the bread together, as we drink of the cup together. May you get glory. May we wonder at the beauty and the glory and incalculable worth that you have in yourself, that you displayed it to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. So help us, God. To, 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 to take of the cup and to worship you in spirit and truth again, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.